John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1176.DE2315, certificate number 38760, Robert Smalls. We are, of course, speaking to survivors of some hopefully distant apocalypse distant both from us and from them right because sure. we don't know when it's coming it could come maybe they don't even remember no. what the what the thing was we're always speculating about who oh, is it a tidal wave they don't even know they're just like well we've always been on this island and we think we're the only island i mean we're all survivors of noah's floods <laughs> but unless you've been to the mountains of turkey you've never there's no indication or if you read the national geographic where they found noah's ark oh i did read that yeah, it's uh, if if they're a hundred thousand years after whatever the cataclysm was, that would be like us not remembering the, the tidal wave that made the ghost forests thousands of years ago. Right. So I guess we're talking about an apocalypse that neither our listeners nor we can. It would be like having the dinosaurs yammer on about the meteor. You'd be like, <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> it was all a long time ago, Grandpa. Like mammals are doing great. Oh, but they can't talk about. They're not talking about the meteor. They're like, we'll live forever unless. Something we can't possibly <laughs> fathom. I don't think dinosaurs are as forward-thinking as us. That's yeah. why they're called dinosaurs. That's right, exactly. We use the word dinosaur to mean someone who is not forward-thinking. Who could not possibly have predicted their demise. But might have a duck bill. Uh, the thing about the end of the world is that I, I never used to mind uh, fictional depictions of disasters and apocalypses. I thought they were fun. And you know what changed that for me? Oh, wait a minute. You didn't mind them or you reveled in them? I wouldn't revel in them. There's one that's kind of disturbing. There's some 80s nuclear era ones those, that, that seemed a little too close for comfort. Those were bad, yeah. Not just the day after, but there's one called Testament with Jane Alexander, which I hope has not survived to the future, <laughs> which is really just some little family in Marin County or something dying slowly of radiation poisoning. It really oh. is like, what if you were in the house when the nuclear winter started? What would it be like? And it turns out I don't want, you know, two hours of that. That seems like a cheap set is what that was. That the, <laughs> right. the, the primary, uh, <laughs> the primary motivation to make that was that it only needed one camera. We call that a bottle episode. <laughs> I think it is some sort of semi TV thing that got funded with public money or 
Hallmark Hall of Fame. Or, just to horrify kids, just yeah. to make it seem like. Just so you're like, you know, we got to do sign the SALT 2 treaty or your hair's going to fall out just like Jan Alexander's son. People can't remember this, but you know, in the 1970s, we've talked about this before, right? I was growing up in the, just the full bloom of the sexual revolution. But by the time I became a teenager that was like finally about to start you're dating eligible. girls. You know, the AIDS crisis arrived yeah. and everybody said, oh, you missed it. But immediately following on the heels of that was the day after where it then became like, not only did you miss the sexual revolution, but by the time you reach maturity, your hair is going to be falling out from radiation poisoning and you'll just be covered with pustules as you die an agonizing death. And I was like, I just wanted to go on some dates. But I, I, liked- just, I just wanted to kiss a girl at a drive-in theater. Nope. <laughs> Why even bother? Read her your gloomy poetry about how we're doomed. <laughs> that's right. Smoke another clove cigarette under the Captain Cook Memorial. We, that's a very specific uh, hypothetical. Yeah, well, every once in a while. The, you sound like someone who might have smoked a clove <laughs> cigarette or two under the Captain Cook Memorial. Every, every once in a while, Anchorage, Alaska just arrives as the cow catcher on a freight train in my mind and it just it rattles through and then it's out the other side does anchorage have a monument to james cook yeah absolutely did he go to alaska he absolutely did oh i thought he was like in the south seas only no he was there but also alaska in fact he named i guess he came up here right yeah for sure he well he named vancouver island and mount rainier he named it for George Vancouver and Peter Rainier, yeah. uh, one of his shipmates and uh, I think a wealthy backer of some kind, respectively. Right. He named Turnigan Arm, which is the body of water just immediately south of Anchorage because it's a um, big tidal flat. And it, it keeps turning again. And you have to turn and turn again oh. and turn again. And it wasn't named again. for like Reginald Turnigan, <laughs> no. uh, an officer on board? Although it's spelled that way. It's spelled like Turnigan, like Tarmigan. Are there Ptarmigans in Turnigan? Yeah. Wait, it has a silent P? No, there's no oh, P, okay. but it's but it's spelled in a kind of pigeon spelling. I would but, love to see a ptarmigan at Turnigan. I'd see a pigeon. A pigeon at Turnigan? Yeah. Turnigan pigeon? I mean, no, a ptarmigan at, at Turnigan would be, there are ptarmigan at Turnigan. Yeah, for sure there are. Is it a pigeon spelling of ptarmigan, even though a ptarmigan is bigger than a pigeon? <laughs> it's spelled in the Gullah dialect. Oh, we're going to get to the Gullah I dialect know today. I know we are. I'm, I'm excited, excited to get there. Maybe we should do an entry on the Gullah dialect. We certainly should. You know, the Gullah dialect is almost completely... um, Extinct? No, no, a complete... It's synonymous sounding with... What is the word I'm looking for where two dialects are? Analogous? I thought analogous, but that's not it either. Like if they share a common root? No, if they share like almost a total commonality with the Bahamian dialect, the Bahamian sort of patois. They're like almost 100% intelligible to one another. With probably similar West African roots, right? Right, right. But, but weird that they would have two separate like points of evolution but arrive at a very, very similar kind of... Speaking of realizing now, I, um, I think I've been saying Bahamian all this time. Bahamian? And I think, yeah, I think Bahamian also works. For a long time... that's not good because it's not the Bahamas. <laughs> for a long time, I don't, I'm not going to go said, to Taney Bahama. I said uh, Bahamanian. For a long you, time. You, that added, was a, a, that, you added a syllable? That was a Roderick. Well, that's because that's what Panama does. It should be Panamian, like right. Canadian and Bahamian, but it's not. The Panamanian. Panama, Panama's, no, it's Panamanian. Like, because we're, we're going to start Panamania. That's where people just get Woo! so excited about Panama. Panamania! Yeah, it's a skinny little country. <laughs> Woo! Uh, yeah, Bahamanian, I said for a long time. And no one corrected me because nobody... Cares. It, well, nobody cares, and it's not like something that people say normally. You were just talking to yourself, wandering the, the corridors uh, of your house. Bahamania. 
Uh, but <laughs> you were just making racist uh, tirades uh, about German, the Bahamas. <laughs> but yeah, the Gullah dialect, we should talk about it. Although we didn't, we make a plan that we weren't going to keep saying that we were every time something interesting came up that we would, we would reserve it for a few. Cause it episode. makes people disappointed in the current episode. Right. They're like, wow, they're really talking up that Gullah thing. No, they're going to love this episode. They're going to stop listening to this and go listen to the Gullah one, which we recorded, you know, three years from now. Right. God willing. The reason I brought up the end of the world is because the thing that kind of soured me on all these amazing Mad Max post-apocalyptic or zombie wastelands that I used to love was having a family, like having kids. Right. Because then you start to imagine when the stuff starts to go down. (sighs) Your kid. It's Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Like, I feel like I'll be exposed as a totally helpless and, uh, what's the word? In, not impotent, ineffectual, 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 uh, father figure in this new wilderness because I do not have the skills to survive. It was the birthday party cheesecake jelly bean boom that got you off of the end of the world. <laughs> right. I know all the lyrics to it's the end of the world, but I was, none of that prepared me for the actual end of the world. I found after I had a kid that I no longer could watch movies or scenes in shows where they were gratuitously hurting children. You know, you see movies where like a child gets hurt and it's integral to the plot and I can barely stomach those. Like Lilo and Stitch. Like Lilo and Stitch. For example. But there are a lot where kids are just sort of collateral damage or they hurt a kid in order to gin up some sympathy for some other character or something. Right. You know, or just like, or. To show that this guy's super bad. Yeah. Or it gives a, it puts a moment in a, in a film into some kind of bold relief that the moment itself doesn't warrant because a kid gets held hostage or hurt or it goes missing. And I just turn that stuff off instantly because I feel like it's, it's such a cheap method of getting a viewer's attention. And I, my, my little heart can't take it. You used to love it. You'd be like, Sophie's choice. This is hilarious. I just let it roll off my sleeve. I didn't love it. But I don't really love... I think it's a common criticism from women as well that, you know, movies will treat women as devices to show how evil the villain is. I'm just going to rape some people. We're never going to follow up on them or their trauma, but... Never knew her before, won't know her after. Exactly. So that's a problem I have with, um, you know, this, uh, this knowledge that if something really bad were to happen, could I save my family? You don't feel like you could? You don't feel like there's an animal Ken... That's going to like go into road warrior mode. I don't think I'm top 10 percentile for having a post apocalyptic animal inside me. So maybe, there, maybe you do. Okay. Do you feel like you do? Okay. Oh, for sure. Do you feel like if the apocalypse happens, like you're going to show up here on my doorstep with your family and say like, can we shelter in place? No. I mean, I'm, I know to fill my, um, to fill my bathtub and get, <laughs> get our, with water and get our 72 hour kits out. But like, that's your plan? but that's where my plan ends. 72 hours. Like in, in, in month two. I've got nothing. Board games. I got a lot of board games. My mom has always hardened a bunker in the basement of her, of wherever of her she lives <laughs> and in her heart. And she hardened a bunker in mine before I was able to, to speak. But no, my family is very apocalypse minded. We have a very detailed plan on what to do as a family group in the event of about five different versions of a disaster. We know where our rendezvous point is. We know who's supposed to bring what. This is hilarious to me because the youngest of you is in your, is in your what? Forties now? Forties. Uh-huh, <laughs> and you're all still, you're all still rehearsing the, uh, the family drills from 1972. We absolutely do. Yeah. And if, if there was a 9.4 earthquake that happened right now, I would. I would finish the show. I don't know about you. Well, until the power went off. 
until I, the earthquake accidentally like shook my elbow and I touched the space bar on our on my computer and I thought the recording stopped. <laughs> Pro Tools, no, the Pro Tools is the first victim. No! But no, I would uh, I within two minutes I would have the bag that has all the stuff we would need. And then I would say, we need to get to rendezvous, rendezvous point A. Tango. <laughs> and you're like. I don't, and I'd be at home being like, I just, I don't own a hatchet. Yeah. I'm going to need a hatchet, aren't well, I? How am I going to get firewood? I don't have a hatchet. You know, that's one reason I drive a 1979 Suburban because. Because it has a hatchet? No, because it can survive an electromagnetic pulse. Oh, it has no electronic it, it uh, components. No, yeah, no, nothing that would fuse in the event of a. I, I mean, Are I'm you making saying my it, electric Chevy Volt is not going to survive the, the neutron your pulse? Your Chevy Volt is just going to turn into a well it's going to turn into something that we can cower behind as yeah. we as as we experience the fuselage of the, the I've got militias. a lot of good cowering stuff in my house I got a cowering couch I got some uh-huh. I got a, cower know, behind some of your expensive paintings cower behind the, the bigger lego sets right yeah we we've got cowering options for sure I make it sound like I'm crazier than I am it's just a thing from when we were growing up we were always ready for something we were yeah we were wounded by that era all of yeah, us yeah but I was thinking about that today just w- you know what you would do to save your family because uh the story of Robert Smalls takes place during the era of slavery in America and I feel like I should explain this to the future that for sorry to break your hearts but for almost all of human history People just generally thought it was cool to own other people. For sure they did. In fact, you were just searching for a Bible verse to encode into this episode, and you were like, there are a lot of Bible verses about slavery, but they're all really pro-slavery. They're all strongly <laughs> they're all strongly for slavery. And I think if you go back and look at all of the world civilizations, they were largely pro-slavery until... Well, it's the slave owners writing the texts, you know, like not a lot of downsides in slavery for a slave owner, not great for everyone else. Well, not great. I mean, it's actually pretty great for everyone else, just not great for the slaves. Right. I guess by everyone else, I meant the massive underclass population working as chattel for free. Yeah. Because, and I hope we don't give the future any ideas. What if they've never thought of slavery and they're like, wait a second. Oh, we have an underclass. For sure they've thought of slavery. I think that the- Do you think everyone thinks of slavery? Yeah, I think the absence of slavery is a thought technology. It is an evolution, but it's not a natural. I think slavery is the more natural state. I guess you were making it seem like individuals would think of it. Like a kid would be like, that kid's not doing anything. I can make him do my homework. I think it's absolutely you, you true. You think that happens? I mean, I think like the strong person grabs the the slightly smaller person by the back of the neck and says, you do this. So if I never had that thought, it's because there was no one slightly weaker than me? Like I was the bottom of the food chain? Oh, I think you probably did have that thought. <laughs> I guess I had little brothers and sisters. Yeah, you. It, it was, the thing is, in our culture, it was argued against from the time that you could hear an argument. So it was never acceptable for you. My but. baby blanket actually says... Ken, slavery is not okay. Ken, slavery has been abolished. Put it out of your mind. It's like, what a weird sampler to hang above my crib. What, what a weird thought technology. But right. it worked. I think if you look at, if you're thinking about post-apocalypse as the life forms, as the sentient aspens first start gaining like movement as their roots kind of disengage from the soil and they are able to start moving along. And that's when they realize, wait, I... I could move less if I made some other plant. Yeah, they're going to they're gonna come if upon some- If I made these some, lichens move for me. Come upon some ferns and say, you know what? Why don't you guys go gather some nitrogen for us? We're just going to stand here and quiver. Uh, yeah, I guess I should, every night I should be putting my kids to bed by being like, slavery's not okay, good night. Hey, you guys, slavery, still bad. We could end the show that way all the time. Slavery's still bad, bye. And that concludes- <laughs> 
Like Bob Barker was always like Robert Smalls. Spay and neuter your cats. But would it have killed him to be like, slavery is not okay? This is Bob Barker saying, slavery is not okay. It should still be abolished. Have a good one. I mean, I think we do. He actually could use some reminders of that uh, right now. It, does, it should. It does seem to be wearing off. <laughs> it should be on on the back of everybody's cereal box. Like, so Robert Smalls was a man who, born into slavery, at one point had to make the choice. You know, facing what for him was an intolerable apocalyptic scenario, a lifetime of chattel slavery, had to for fa- himself and his family and his family had to face up to what can I do to help them? Like this is the end of the world if I don't do something what can I do for my wife and two daughters? And it turns out to be a fascinating story. He was born uh, in 1839 in South Carolina. He was uh, a mixed race kid. Well, I guess at the time they would have said he was mulatto. Not really clear who his father was, but it might've been. Almost certainly was. You know, it's somebody white on the plantation. So it might've been the owner. It might've been the foreman. It didn't seem like a large plantation but maybe I'm wrong. But no, I think I, I read the speculation was that it was his mother's master. Yes, I think that's a common assumption because that commonly happened. And so he was raised being treated pretty well. I assume there's different psychological effects that'll happen to a guy when he realizes that using his slaves as sexual playthings produces children. Right. And that's very... Those, those children get to live in the house sometimes. And that's complicated, right? Yeah. But his mom did not want him to lose sight of who he was. She would take him out into the field to make sure he worked with the other slaves and made sure he watched whippings. Hmm. Like, just so you know, um, you need to keep your head down because this is, don't Don't, don't think things are good just because you're in the house with me right now. Right. But in fact, by some accounts, it seems to have made him not submissive, but very defiant. I imagine. I mean, I think that's, yeah, you see all that cruelty to your own people. That seems like apocalypse preparation on his mother's part. Maybe it is. Like, maybe, maybe it was not keep your head down. Maybe it's like, this is the reality of your situation. Oh, for sure. You're going to need to be tougher than you think. Don't, so, don't uh, relax into the fact that you have a pillow on your bed. So as a young kid, he was often getting, he was one of the kids who was often getting into trouble. He would be in and out of jail as a young man. And as he neared adulthood, um, he entered into an economic situation that I was not aware of during slavery, but I guess totally makes sense where... Uh, his owner would say, you just go take a job somewhere. You no longer live here at the house, but you're still mine. You still send me all your money. Maybe I'll be nice and let you keep a dollar a week, which was the arrangement he had with Robert. So Robert was sent into Charleston to work jobs at the waterfront, but he's still a slave. Oh, well, this was a major feature of the slave economy. You, you picture everyone being out in the fields, but that's not true. You Oh, they you could send your, you could say, if you were a slave owner, you just send your assets wherever they were the most profitable. Sure, they worked, uh, you could, I mean, the uh, slaves did almost every job in a Southern economy, work on the railroads, work in manufacturing. In the Charleston waterfront, uh, Smalls was a, a lamplighter, a stevedore, uh, a rigger, a sail maker. Oh, he sounds like he's in a Decembrist song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, none of these are jobs anymore. <laughs> I'm glad Robert Smalls did not live to see this day when all his skills would be uh, obsolete. But yeah, he has um, all these quaint nautical jobs, valuable skills to have. He's good at them. And he winds up as a sailor. He, ma- he marries um, a woman named Hannah Jones, who's a hotel maid. She's from the Sea Islands around Charleston. So she is a native Gullah speaker. That's where it comes from out in the islands. But he speaks Gullah as well, which is a real plus on his resume. From his own mother? Uh, he must, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, we think of it as an island thing, but... I assume many of the slaves on plantations were speaking Gullah. The there time. were two kinds of 
Gullah populations, as I understand it, were uh, there were saltwater. Um, they had a different name for themselves. It was like the Geechees. I think it's Geechees. I'm don't quote me on that. Although this is a show where we purport to have this information at hand. Uh, there were saltwater Geechees and freshwater Geechees. So there were upland. This is all happening in the lowland area of South Carolina and Georgia, but there were upland Geechees also. Upland Geechees going to get you? <laughs> upland gonna Geechee. Get you? Am I right about Geechee? I don't want that to be, I don't want to get that wrong. No, you're right. Freshwater oh, okay. and saltwater Geechee. Yeah. So it, it sounds like a thing from a Dr. Seuss book you made up. It does. It does. The freshwater Geechees took the fresh water from their letter sweaters. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a star-bellied Geechee. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. And so now that now that Robert Smalls has a a wife and two young daughters, and I think a third son who dies of smallpox at some point. He's well, so a, the daughters were hers. Is that what you said? I think they're theirs. I think they, uh, he marries Hannah and they have two daughters. My understanding was that Hannah had two daughters prior to their marriage. And then they had three kids themselves. Yeah, you're right. It looks like she did have two daughters already and then some children with Robert. Um, but being a, being a father makes him think, I don't, I don't want to raise my kids. And he's like still a his. young guy at this point, right? Sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, this is, uh, the Civil War has started. He's in his early 20s. He's been conscripted uh, into the Confederate Army, where his sailing abilities and knowledge of Charleston Harbor are really coming in handy. But he wants to free his family. And he, he goes to his, his wife has a different owner. He goes to his wife's owner and says, what will it cost to buy out my wife's freedom? Because this is a thing you could do. That's an, that's an incredibly interesting idea because there there were free black people in South Carolina who had just paid the money who had were and that you could be born free yeah you could that. inherit if you had inherited it right from yeah. your former master so what a, what a curiously like incomprehensible social system he gets quoted an unreal amount of money $800 which i guess is you know if you've got an asset that will give you a lifetime of work a young healthy hotel maid that you don't have to pay a cent to yeah think what you're saving in wages by having her instead of an actual employee. Right. Um, so 800 bucks though that, is- I'm out, sure that's to us, that's tens of thousands of dollars. Out, outside of Robert Smalls' He does not ability. have that in his budget. He thinks he could get $100 together. He's not even close. So he needs a daring plan. He needs uh, a Hail Mary. Oh, and this includes like, so her two daughters also born into servitude. So they would also be the property They, they of, belong to her master. Yeah, you, you, it, it just keeps going. It's the gift that keeps on giving. You're- 
your slaves' generations are yours forever, according to these crazy laws that favor slave owners. So the Civil War is now raging in 1862. He's been conscripted, as I said. He's a, working aboard a boat called the Planter, which is kind of a shallow-bottomed uh, paddle wheel steamer that used to run cotton-supplied cotton plantations. But now it's in the Confederate Navy, and it's running supplies and armaments to the little islands that dot the Charleston Harbor. Um, now, as the person in this show who is prone to do this kind of thing... Are you going to give us all the specs of this boat, please? No, I should say that... The Civil War began there in Charleston Harbor, right in <clears> the Battle of Fort Sumter. And then there was a Union blockade of the the harbor, you know, the larger sort of area. Yeah, that's what, so that's what's going on now. Um, the, now? Uh, no. 2018? No, in spring of 1862. <laughs> oh, okay. Where we, set, where we lay our <laughs> scene, John. <laughs> I was like, wow. Charleston's still blockaded because obviously the Confederates are trying to get cotton and rice out to Europe so they can trade it for real money, not valueless Confederate script that has like a picture of Larry the Cable Guy on it. It should be noted that Britain continued to trade with the South. Even though have they already, they've already banned slavery, I think. They they banned slavery. But uh, they need quite that sweet, sweet cotton. That's right. And they, tobacco. Yeah, they love the taste of cotton and tobacco. Just put a wad of that in your mouth. <laughs> mm. So they continue to, to fund the South indirectly through this illegal trade. And uh, the blockade runners, that's what they called these, you know, brave guys that knew all the ins and outs of the islands. I mean, the, the harbor is such a geographically complicated point. It's called a rat hole just because there were so many little passages and channels that a skilled navigator could use to get goods out or bring in supplies for the, the army or whatever that had been, that they badly needed. I think, uh, I think in Gone with the Wind, Rhett Butler is a, is a, Char- a Charleston blockade runner. He's gotten back from this, his life of sexy daring do running stuff in and out of Charleston Harbor. And that's what catches Scarlet's eye. Boy, that kind of figures, doesn't it? I know. I assume, so I assume all the blockade runners looked like Clark Gable with a little pencil thin mustache, <laughs> right? Some of them looked like Robert Smalls. That's true. In this case, uh, the planter has a crew that's almost entirely African-American. There are three white officers, but there's a dozen slaves running the actual ship. Um, Smalls is, in effect, the pilot, but he's not allowed to be the pilot because he's not a person. He's a slave. So they call him the wheelman, so they don't have to pay or recognize him in any way. But he's, for all intents and purposes, the pilot. He's, he's as good with this boat as anybody. And the captain will often leave the ship in command of this totally black crew. Because they are perceived to be content, complacent in their uh, station in life. That's the thing. If you don't imagine people as people, it doesn't even enter your frame of mind that they might have minds of their own that include plots and ploys and escapes. So he got off the boat and he was like, we all good? Everybody good? We'll be back tomorrow. (laughs) Well, in fact, there was an order, uh, a Confederate (laughs) army order that they were not allowed to leave their ship in the the hands of non-officers. But they would do it anyway because all these guys had families in Charleston. They would go home to their wife and kids. You guys uh, don't escape. See you in the morning. Bye. I mean, the thing is, when we, we should say, like, although the, these laws and these ideas of ownership of other humans are kind of hard for us to comprehend how that society would have worked. You're, you're, you're about to justify it. Yeah. I'm, they were, the <laughs> Here's slave, the argument. Let the, me make the case. <laughs> the slaves were much happier in slavery. No. No. What I, what I, I think it's easy for us to think that whites in the South regarded African-Americans as subhuman, but I think that that is largely impossible. You cannot have daily contact with another human being and continue to 
fail to realize their full humanity. You just have to be constantly suppressing your sense of their humanity by this constant right. repetition of justification think in your of, head. Think of the cognitive dissonance. I guess that's why you needed scriptural accounts to, to, right. to constantly remind these people every Sunday, it's okay. They seem like people, but don't worry. Right. And this compression of law and culture that's on, because Robert Smalls, by all accounts, was a charismatic and brilliant guy. You couldn't be his captain on a ship and watch him pilot around and still continue to think of him as he is absolutely his own man. It's just that they never, it never would have occurred to them that, that this system, because it's a, it's a form of like mass brainwashing. Hypnosis. Yeah, yeah. Hypnosis where the white officers are just as they're convinced of their own righteousness to such a degree that they couldn't imagine that it wasn't like God's will on earth. Especially in the middle of a war fighting for the continuance of that same institution. You know, like nobody in the middle of a war is going to be like, should we actually be like, (laughs) like that's the thing about, I'm sure that's the thing about a war, you know? So So anyway, they leave him alone. They leave the crew alone on the the boat. They leave the black crew alone on the boat many nights. And Small starts to see that he has an opening here. And he goes to his wife and says, what if I just took this Confederate boat and we all just escaped to freedom on a Confederate Navy vessel. And she says, uh, what happens if you get caught? And he says, well, I'll, I'll be shot for sure. And her response is, I think you've got to do it. I mean, if you die, you die. We, we have to try something because they have kids. They don't want to raise their kids there. So, so on the night of May 12th, 1862, Smalls goes to the rest of the crew and says, we should do this. We should do this tonight. This is only one year into the war, right? This is early in the Civil (laughs) War. It's about a year after Fort Sumter. Yeah. Again, Charleston, the flashpoint for the rebellion that started the whole whole Megillah. And Smalls tells his crew, I I think we can make the 10 miles between this wharf and the Union gunships that are blockading the harbor. If we can keep any Confederate ship from firing at us, if we can keep Fort Sumter and the other fortifications from firing on us, and if we can keep the Union ships from firing on us, we will be free. Are you guys in? Wow. And most of them are in. Two of them drop out. Two of them are like, I guess it's too risky. I'll settle for what I know. Right. And again, like in that situation, maybe I would be that guy. No, like, I don't think so. I don't know. Like, I think, think you choose adventure. Think about, Yeah, that's my famous trait. <laughs> Ken Jennings. I just think people become very <clears throat> passive in that kind of situation because, hey, this is not great, but it's, uh, you know, I've been fed. Me and my family are at least alive. We know? talk about this all You're the time. You're going to take away the only thing. In the context of our contract negotiations. <laughs> I'm like, come on, Ken. And you're like, no. Yeah, our, I don't want to imply that our contract negotiations are anything like a slaveholder relationship. No, absolutely not. Nothing like that. But also, I did commandeer a boat and you refused to get on. Like a, a metaphorical boat or you actually wanted to do the podcast from a pirate radio boat? <laughs> no, don't you remember? I ended up sinking it in the harbor. I had to scuttle the ship. <laughs> so most of the men are in and they decide it's going to be this very night. It's a foggy night of May 12th, 1862. The problem is they're on a very noisy paddle wheel steamship. It's spouting black smoke, the wheels turning. This is not some Paul Revere ninja scenario where they can row with muffled oar and get out of the harbor. They're right. just going to have to just sail away at full steam and hope that everyone's like, yep, there's that boat that often sails out of here. So to describe the boat, it's a side wheeler. Right. And it's not as big as like a Mark Twain paddle boat. No, don't imagine some fun Disneyland casino kind of riverboat. It's a low, it's like it has a shallow draft, but it's bigger than just like a 
I mean, you can have it has a crew of twelve, right? Yeah. I mean, plus officers, and it's schlepping guns and ammunition. It's a working it's a transport boat. ship. Yeah, it's not a big warship, but it's not a little cabin cruiser either. It's like a medium sized wood burning boat. And there's more than twelve on this night because some of the crew bring their families aboard. The ones with families. Awesome. On two a.m. with the fog thinning, they run up essentially decoy flags, you know, a South Carolina flag and a Confederate flag, which I'm, I assume they do not have the right to just make that call, but they figure they won't be questioned if they're running a Confederate naval flag and a South Carolina flag. And Robert Smalls puts on the straw hat that the captain of the planter often wears. Uh, and it's been remarked that they look somewhat alike. His white officer, this captain of this boat, looks enough like this uh, mulatto pilot, mixed race pilot that maybe they can make a go of this. I should also point out <clears throat> that if you are picturing the Stars and Bars Confederate flag right. that you might see on the General Lee in television's Dukes of Hazard, one that you see now as the racist symbol, this was not adopted by the Confederacy until after this time, and it was never a naval Was flag. it a naval jack? No. No. So the Confederate naval flag and the early Confederate flags had like a, they were kind of like the Betsy Ross flag. They had a circle of stars on a field of blue. And, um, like the United Federation of Planets? Like I would not have any way of knowing what that flag looks My like. My son has a friend I'm that often flies. A nerd. My son has a friend that often flies a, a Federation flag. And, eh, it's not, okay, it's not that much like that. I, I just brought it up. Never but mind. it's like the Betsy Ross flag, except it only has three stripes, red, white, red. And then a and, the, and then a circle because people stars. in the South to this day can only think of three states on average. <laughs> They're like North uh, Carolina. So, well, let's just call it Carolina and <laughs> Georgia and Virginia. We are going to hear from Southerners if they survive the end of the world. There will always be beings to the south of other beings which are to the north, and you can make, that's and they're there to be made fun of. It's just it's part of our innate human culture. So Smalls is standing on the deck of the boat. Um, he's folding his arms in the way he often saw the captain do so. And he's actually impersonating oh, nice. the white captain of the boat in, in his posture. They, the first thing they do is they head to a nearby wharf and pick up all their families and load them aboard in the hold. So, you know, you can imagine the scenario of everybody kind of cowering below decks. Has this ever been and praying. made into a film? This like seems like such a great... It seems good, right? Seems like such a great like scene. It would be Amistad, but without the last half hour, that's just Anthony Hopkins. Um, Arguing in, yeah, in court. Being the ennobled white savior guy, <laughs> yeah. right? Exactly. So they, uh, they get past the two checkpoints. They need to get past, uh, and people see them leaving, and they're just like a kind of a, a shore detective police type guy. And a, a military officer sees them leaving, and it's just like, huh, well, there goes the planter. So they get out of the wharf okay. But there's two different times in the harbor that they're called upon to provide whatever the code is. But of course, Smalls has done this many times. He knows the code. It's two sh long whistles and a short one. Do you want to do that for us as a musician? Bump, bump, bump. That's great. Do you think that's the note that it would have been? No, it probably would have been like... It would have been high. Wouldn't it? Yeah, it would have been like a train whistle, right? That's good. And... And that fools both the boat and the fort they're looking for. In fact, the guy at Fort Sumter uh, gives them a, a friendly yell, you know, and it's, it's getting on to dawn. And he says, blow the damn Yankees to hell or bring one of them in. Hell yes. And, and Smalls, I'm sure, is like, <laughs> these guys. But he's like, aye, aye. You know, he's in character as, you know, his, his cracker captain. 
Sure, because this is like it's just pre-dawn hours, right? So everyone kind of looks like all all the all the guards are seeing really is the is the hat. Yeah, maybe it's silhouetted. You yeah, know? the straw hat and because the obviously posture. this this black guy is not going to be able to pass as the captain of this boat. So the the one thing they might notice. Wait a second. Hold on. Are you an African American gentleman? Which I'm sure is what they would say. Yes. But they make it. They get past Fort Sumter and. Uh, Nothing but Union ships dead ahead. They see the three-masted clipper ship onward. And uh, once they're out of sight of some, Fort Sumter, apparently, they raise a dirty bedsheet, the closest thing they have to a white flag of surrender. And dirty the, dirty bedsheet was also in contention to be the flag of the Confederacy. <laughs> uh, they, they, went, they went with one that was a little more striking. I think it's still the official flag of the Klan, right? <laughs> yeah, the dirty bedsheet. Here's sheet. our dirty bedsheet. Always getting mud on the linens. But the guns of Fort Sumter could certainly have reached the planter well out into the harbor. Yeah, I guess they're just hoping that they're far enough away that nobody can seize them, change the colors. And now we're, we're full on, hey, we're surrendering to the Union. Don't shoot at us. They mode. strike the flag and raise up the dirty bedsheet. The dirty bedsheet of freedom. Wow. <laughs> and so the Union is like hip hip hooray? They pull alongside the Onward and... The Onward sees an all-black crew aboard just dancing, some of them dancing and rejoicing, and, you know, a lot of them have been praying the whole journey, and now they're giving thanks. Um, a bunch of them are not rejoicing. They are pissed. They are cursing Fort Sumter and the whole heart of the South. Oh, they're-, they're Now that they're at a safe distance. <laughs> they're mooning South Carolina. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, they've been suppressing this for years, uh, presumably. And Smalls calls to the clipper ship Onward, uh, the USS Onward, I guess. He says, good morning, sir. I've brought you some of the old United States guns, sir, that were for Fort Sumster, sir, because the current payload of the planter is guns that they're bringing to different fortifications in the harbor. And these were all U.S. guns that, um, oh, that the Confederacy seized. seized when Fort Sumter fell. We're talking about cannons, not, uh, not rifles. I assume cannonry, yeah. yeah. And the Onward says... Great, come aboard. And they raise the stars and stripes aboard the planter. Because, you know, they now have a, another ship as well, which is valuable war booty right. as well. And speaking of booty, um, the cap, I'm not going to, I'm not talking about I, the dancing or whatever. Yeah, listen, this isn't some episode of Jeopardy where you get to make booty references. That's not what I do on Jeopardy. Is that right? I've seen over and over and over you get your hoe reference in there. When you should have said rake, you knew it was rake. No, I didn't. I didn't know it was rake. That's the thing. I don't think anyone would say rake in that scenario. I, that was my first thought. Oh, really? Yeah. The guy on the end in that episode is a Lutheran pastor who was about to buzz in and say ho. And he thanked me for actually beating him to it because he said his, my congregation would never have <laughs> forgiven me. <laughs> uh, Captain Parrott, the ranking officer, is immediately impressed by Smalls uh, and in his... his uh, his missive to his superior, he unfortunately calls him very intelligent contraband, mm. which is kind of a compliment until you realize that he's kind of considering mm -hmm. these right. human beings as contraband, which right. are now, you know, belong to the armies. But of course, legally, they are not contraband in the North. And Parrot's superior, Samuel Francis DuPont of, I believe, the Delaware DuPonts, meets personally with Smalls and is very impressed. He says he's superior to any uh, of the other, um, you know, escaped Black Southerners who have come into our lines, although, you know, intelligent as many of them have been, this guy is the, the best I've seen, the cream of the crop. And so at 23 years old, Robert Smalls becomes a celebrity in the North. It should be noted that this is happening 
prior to the Emancipation Proclamation. Yes. So <clears throat> even in the North, there was not a sense that every black person that crossed that line was immediately free. There was still... It's a live question at the time. It was a live question. There, it, Prior to the war, you could be a Southern slave owner and bring slaves to the North and the North respected your right to that property. And in fact, the Fugitive Slave Act said that slaves escaped would be slaves had to be returned, returned. To, to keep the peace. Right. So it wasn't until 1863 that the Emancipation Proclamation would have sort of decided that. So for his use of contraband and the idea that the North still recognized slaves as what? Yeah, I guess potentially property still, even in the North. Oh, I didn't know this, but contraband actually was a military term of art then. And it seems to have been invented as a way for the army to say, we're not returning these escaped slaves. Oh. Even though the Fugitive Slave Act, you know, theoretically would have dictated this before the war. It's This is like a new legal status. We're going to say... They're contraband uh -huh. and essentially we'll treat them as refugees and maybe a lot of them will enlist right. in, in these uh, African-American regiments. Although those were not yet, there were not yet African-American regiments at the time in 1862. That actually comes into play in our story. At the time that Smalls escaped, uh, Edwin Stanton, the secretary of war, is lobbying Lincoln you know, to allow African-Americans to enlist in the Northern Army and Lincoln has not yet done it. But... Robert Smalls, you know, becoming this amazing young celebrity who escaped from Charleston Harbor uh, in daring fashion becomes a valuable tool for Stanton to use to convince Lincoln. Oh, he was a hero, uh, like in the North. Yeah. I mean, for one thing, he gets a, Congress awards him and his fellow escapees prize money for the, the goods, the cannons and the ship they brought. So suddenly, he, you know, this guy who could not afford an $800 bounty to, to purchase his wife's freedom now is given $1,500. Nice. By the U.S. government. I think historically there's been some analysis that shows he kind of got screwed. Like they, they were not giving these black men the fairest deal. I'm sure. Um, but still, $1,500 <laughs> more than he's ever seen in his life. And the and he's a celebrity in the South as well. This, this is a real black eye, to coin a phrase. Uh -huh. that's, I guess that's unfortunate. For the South, which puts a $4,000 bounty on Smalls' head. Oh. Uh, and even gins up testimony so that the people who saw the escape swear that there were um, uh, three whites brought aboard. Because that helps them save face. Right. The fact that these slaves can engineer their own freedom is very embarrassing. So they have to say that some kind of Northern spies uh, engineered the whole thing. Of course, there had to be a white guy behind it. Right. Got to have your, your white savior. That's, that's what, yeah, I mean, it was probably <laughs> Even Anthony the racist Hopkins. Want a white savior. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably, uh, I mean, that's wonderful that it would have been on both sides of the, it would have been such a striking. Um, Propaganda, either embarrassment or uh, asset, right? Right, right. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com slash 
Start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. Uh, so Smalls is brought in to meet the Secretary of War personally, and he wants to lobby for this cause for black soldiers. And when Lincoln signs the order, Smalls personally goes on tour recruiting thousands of Northern black men to join the war effort. I'm kind of picturing it like the first Captain America movie uh. where he becomes kind of this spokesperson and he's on posters and he's going around on trains doing all kinds of recruitment and being the face of the army. But just like Captain America, he's also doing the equivalent of blowing up Nazis because he's also um, on active duty for quite a bit of the war. Cause he's got this amazing unparalleled knowledge of, of Charleston, Charleston Harbor. Harbor. He's a pilot of this kind of ship. And he becomes, uh, they actually put him on the planter, which is now a union ship. Now he's officially the pilot and eventually the captain. And He becomes uh, the captain of the planter. Yes. Uh, How could a black sailor even then be called the captain of a boat? Yeah, I assume he was not like the rank of captain, right? I mean, uh, black men, as we'll see, were not officers in the Navy until World War II. Right. But there may have been, a, like again, an African-American regiment of... Naval, yeah. If it's if it's crewed by African American sailors and you're the guy in charge, I guess you're the small sea captain of the boat, right? Even if your rank can't reflect that. And eventually, he's put in charge of an ironclad called the Keokuk, and he's present for 17 different Civil War uh, engagements around Charleston Harbor because he knows the ins and outs of it so well. How cool! And you know, his life is—I mean, that's—it's a fantastic story. But his post-Civil War life is almost as interesting. Um, during the war, as he's kind of doing his public propaganda duties for the war effort, he's actually kicked off a streetcar in Philadelphia for being a black kid, and leads a boycott a hundred years before you would think of—you know—the civil rights movement leading public transportation boycotts. He leads a boycott of the Philadelphia streetcars and actually leads to, which leads to their integration in the late 1860s. In Philadelphia. In Philadelphia. Uh, after the war, he is made a brigadier general in the South Carolina militia. He helps found the Republican Party of South Carolina. Previous to this point, not a lot of abolitionist <laughs> Republicans in, <laughs> in, in, in South, South Carolina. Carolina. Um, but he becomes a real community leader and political leader. He even, his owners, the old... Uh, Owners of his plantation, his former owners, I guess, yeah. uh, the McKees, uh, have fallen on very hard times. They're in disgrace and poverty after the war. He buys their old house, the one where he was raised, and treats them very generously. I guess possibly his father, we can speculate, but treats the former family very generously and uh, you know is not vindictive, but kind of helps them get back on their feet. But he is now the owner of the plantation where he was made to work in the fields and whipped and sent off to prison. You know, that immediate... Reconstruction era, right after the war. Crazy, right? So crazy and so much hopefulness in stories like this, where there must have been a perception that the world truly was transformed, that Robert Smalls could buy the plantation home and become a prosperous businessman and a and that this would usher in a new era of equality. I'm sure it's like the feelings of the Obama era, but actually with quite a bit more justification. Right. Like a, a massive societal change had happened for, for millions of people. And it's what makes that post-Reconstruction era oh, yeah. such a tragedy. We failed so utterly to capitalize on that moment because the North just sort of 
didn't want to deal with it. Didn't want to deal with the South. Didn't want to deal with the hard work of actually overseeing the integration of the South truly. I'm sure a ton of internal resistance to this idea that this large African-American population should be integrated in society. I'm sure the North was not unanimously full of people who thought that was a great or easy idea. No, and and you know, and a lot of the white South was just like, well, as soon as the North pulls out of here, we're going back to the way things were. Spoilers, they kind of did. And yeah, and we then spent another, you know, from the end of the Reconstruction all the way till the Civil Rights Movement, a period where the South just slid back into... Yeah, Jim Crow is de facto a lot of the same social structure that uh, the Reconstruction was trying to remove. And so, it's so tantalizing because you go back to this era and there's so many stories like this where you get a Robert Smalls and you're just like, oh, and then he began a political dynasty and he became the governor of South Carolina and he beca- and you're just like, oh, except no. I mean, he and his generation were able to do it, but they weren't able to transfer those gains to their family and their community. In and the same and way. Smalls is the face of, in a lot of ways, of both the rise and the fall of all these reconstruction efforts. You know, he, he considered that um, his own history, his personal ability to escape was a powerful argument for equality. And he thought he could be the face of a lot of this stuff. He said, my race needs no special defense. For the past history of them, you know, of, of his people in this country, proves them to be the equal of any people anywhere. All they need is an equal chance in the battle of life. So even though he engineered his own escape, he was not going to be some Booker T. Washington, we can all do it on, on our own bootstraps kind of guy. But he was saying, if we just had a quality of opportunity, we would be able to do so much. And again, he's a powerful argument for that because everyone's seen him, him bring himself uh, out of slavery just through his own kind of daring and ingenuity. And so he served in the South Carolina State House and Senate, and then five terms in Congress, in the U.S. Congress. And that's funny to imagine, too, you know, that just a decade after the Civil War ended, these former slaves were being sent to state and uh, national houses of representatives to serve alongside probably like super racist old guys with mutton chops. It's amazing to think of, right? There were were several. There was Hiram Revels was, I think, the first... U.S. Senator, first black U.S. Senator. Which state? Uh, He was from North Carolina, but he was elected from Mississippi during Reconstruction. He was the first African-American to serve in the House or serve in the, you know, in Congress. And then Joseph Rainey was another representative, and he was from South Carolina also. If you watch, you know, uh, awful kind of old racist stuff like Birth of a Nation, they depict this era as just a horror show where all these genteel Southerners were forced to deal with these awful um, former slaves reentering society. And so they show, I think it's a state legislature, or maybe it's in Washington, D.C., where you see these elected blacks and... The movie, it's just awful. It's all these uh, white actors in blackface just portraying them as yahoos and clowns, just, you know, sitting with their feet up and bare feet on the desk and spitting tobacco on the floor and all the all the other politicians are are clucking their tongues. Right. Um, Where, in fact, these men were, like, the most esteemed. Right. <laughs> like, the funny thing is Robert Smalls was actually, like, a super skilled orator, orator yeah. and debater who really rose through the state and then the national political system just on his own merits and had like considerable legislative success. Like uh, the D.W. Griffith propaganda could not have been more wrong. Um, he worked very hard to keep 
troops in the South for as long as possible because I think he knew what was going to happen for sure. when the militias pulled out. He even uh, tried to integrate the U.S. military uh, in the late, you know, in the mid to late uh, 19th century to no avail. He, he was never able to get a vote on that. And while he was still serving in the South Carolina state legislature, I mean, probably this is probably his longest lasting and most meaningful legacy is he wrote the legislation that in South Carolina started compulsory free compulsory public education for all, which was the first system of its kind anywhere in the United States. Hard to imagine that up until that point, right? You you went to school sort of ad hoc. Kind of haphazardly yeah. if your parents didn't need you for planting or, or harvest or whatever. Right. Um, yeah, and this did not exist in America. Today, we, we take it for granted that all kids get free public education. Well, some of us do. I keep my kids out of public schools and I don't vaccinate them. And I sure, also- you, you teach your daughter at home so she learns the truth about fluorine. Well, that's right. And the, well, moon, and the moon landing. And UFOs, that's right. <laughs> they just don't cover UFOs <laughs> enough in uh, actual elementary school classrooms. Sadly, Smalls's career uh, ended as Reconstruction did. You know, that, that kind of, um, the hopeful equality of that era of Republican politician ended in the South when the, what were called the Bourbon Democrats rose to power. They considered, that they called themselves the Redeemers. They were going to redeem the South from the, the stain of this new social order. And our futurelings may think, it's hard to know whether the Democratic and Republican parties will survive into futureling times. They could realign again. But at, at this point in time, the Republican Party was the abolitionist party and the Democrats were the Southern revisionist party. And I always just assume that everyone understands that. But I think we're living in a golden age of people being like, Lincoln was a Republican. Nobody told you that. Did right. I blow your mind, right. libs? I'm pretty <laughs> right. sure I already knew that. A lot of people uh, already know it, but a lot of people don't. And, and really the Democratic Party didn't become a party of racial equality until the Johnson administration. No, it was still the de facto party of Southern segregation well into the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Uh, and in order to oust Smalls, um, who was an influential and beloved politician, they were able to concoct a bribery scandal that got him booted out of office, even though I think he was later pardoned. There was no actual court conviction. Right. And he went back to, he had been a successful community leader after the war in his native Beaufort, South Carolina. He'd opened a, a store and a school for the black population and started a newspaper for the, for the local African-American community. And so to the end of his life, he was a, a beloved and respected community leader. There's an amazing story from 1913 where he is able to stop a lynch mob from hanging a black man. And I was like, oh, let's see how he did it with his amazing gravitas and legislative abilities. I guess he went to the mayor and said, I've got black people all over dispatch all over town and they will burn it down if you don't disperse the lynch mob. Whoa! And that worked. Nice job. Mob, I know you're big on the rule of law, but... Uh, I do, but every once in a while, you know, threatening, that's a pretty great story. threatening to burn the town down also works. It, yeah, if you can manage to dispatch 100 men all over town with kerosene with Like little tinder rags, boxes? Sure. Why not? Who are just kind of standing like easily leaning against phone poles like, oh, don't mind us. A postscript to, to Robert Smalls' story is that uh, in 1942 when the Navy still really did not essentially have black sailors. I guess we've talked before about black yeah, sailors during there, World there War There were II. black sailors, but they were always in, in service roles. They were not in combat roles until... So what's the incident? I totally forgot the name of the, the explosion. The, oh, oh, the uh, Port Chicago incident. Good example. See elsewhere in the omnibus. But also, uh, you know, in, in, at Pearl Harbor, there was famously a black cook that manned a machine gun and shot down some Japanese zeros and became a 
again, sort of uh, like Smalls became a uh, kind of a folk hero, a folk hero, and a recruiting tool. Uh, he was taken on a on a tour where he encouraged African Americans to enlist in the army and navy. Although, what made him a hero was that he was a combat hero, and he was encouraging people to enlist in what was still a segregated navy, and none of them could fire a gun. The uh, the funny thing is that he was a chef. I, chef, I grew right. up in, um, when I grew up in South Korea, all the, uh, the local TV channel run by the army was the only English language TV we had. And they weren't allowed to show ads for whatever reason, you know, the department of defense cannot endorse right. Coca-Cola. Uh, Johnson and Johnson or whatever. So they would just show army or, you know, general interest or military themed PSAs. I may have talked about this on the show before, just yeah. a, a military about it explaining sure. why there's a, a, sur a surcharge on commissary groceries and how you shouldn't use starch in your battle dress uniform. That's against regulations. They'd have whole commercials with little, little hip hop jingles so that you could remember all this stuff. And there was a bunch of commercials about military history. And one in particular was about Ensign Doris Dory Miller. Yeah. And the guy was just a chef who, who jumped on a gun. But ex you're exactly right. He's recruiting um, black soldiers. And this is, you know, and he's very meaningful now among African-American members of the Navy and military because he's an early hero in a time when there weren't a lot of opportunities. But yeah, he was... Definitely getting people who were going to enlist to become chefs and laundry ship detail like himself. Oh, but, but you were saying about Smalls. In 1942, um, the Navy starts training African-American seamen on a little kind of mini base. You know, obviously the bases are not integrated on Lake Michigan and Illinois, uh, which they name Camp Robert Smalls in honor of this early black naval hero. And in 1944, Eleanor Roosevelt and Adlai Stevenson, who was, I think, Assistant Secretary of the Navy at the time, they pressed the Navy to begin a program where they start turning out black officers. So Camp Robert Smalls becomes the officer candidate school for the very first African-American officers in the U.S. Navy, the, the so-called Golden 13. And uh, before the camp is shut down in 1948, it turns out, in addition to the first Navy officers, you know, really a who's who of black America who had enlisted during World War II, including the great Harlem Renaissance poet Owen Dodson, um, Bob Trumpeter Clark Terry, painter Charles Seabree, and Larry Doby, who would go on to integrate, the center fielder who would go on to integrate the American League. He was the second black major league baseball player after um, Jackie Robinson. And uh, another uh, guy who went through Camp Robert Smalls during its short uh, tenure was Robert Smalls' own great-grandson. Wow. Who was, uh, who was joining the U.S. Navy, just like great-grandpa. What a great story. And that concludes Robert Smalls, entry 1176.DE2315, certificate number 38760 in the omnibus. Futurelings, from our vantage point in what is presumably your distant past, somewhere across the Taurus of time. A Taurus? Like it's a Ford Taurus? It's a Ford Taurus. Time is shaped like a Ford station wagon. Um, what, now a Taurus is a shape. Oh, like, a, I think it's Taurus? A, a Taurus, or, yeah, I mean, I... You're saying the same thing. Yeah. It's, it's like a donut. Uh, it's like a donut. Time like is a, a flat donut. Time is a flat donut. So, so a bagel? I've been saying time is a donut. Time is a Montreal-style donut, Wait, which is, is not a donut. Let me take that back immediately. But it's flattened? A, a Montreal bagel has a wider yeah, I've seen hole. That. There's there's smaller. 
They're flatter. They're not this big puffy sesame seed covered donuts you get at the grocery store. They're a different, a whole different brand. Whatever's in the water in Montreal makes for a flatter bagel. It's just the style. It was the style at the time. Uh, but uh, there is a whole class of people in the United States that feel like Montreal bagels are the preferred style of bagel. And they'll ship them all the way to New York City. And there's actually a place here in Seattle now that makes Montreal-style Montreal style bagels. bagels. Are they still chewy? Or are they're they chewy. Like, they're not like, it's not like a big sun chip in the shape. It's not like a bagel chip. No, right? it's not a donut and it's not a, it's not a uh, crispy thing. It's still a chewy, it's very chewy. You know, there are a lot, oh my God, there are so many opinions about how bagels should be made. I feel like if it's flat, it would be hard to do the thing you want to do, which is cut it in half and put, oh, no, put, I, put a smear I, on it. It's not flat. It's just like not it's not puffy. It's not I like, see. it doesn't look like the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, like a lot of... I feel like a lot of local bagels here, probably just because we're, they're not authentic, are over-puffed. Over-puffed. Yes. And that's not true. These bagels, uh, Montreal-style bagels, you could play a uh, ring toss game with them. That's why they are, they came up in Montreal because they were used as hockey pucks, I think. Oh, there it is. In addition to a snack after the game. That's not true. <laughs> that's not true, no. Uh, but anyway... If you are living in the future, if you are a bagel who has somehow gained the ability to listen to podcasts, I encourage you to go through the Taurus of time or the Taurus. Drive a Taurus into the Taurus. And uh, reconnect with us on past Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick and at Omnibus Project. Also email us. Ken all uh, has just recently gone and replied to a lot of emails. I was a little derelict. Yeah, I, had, I, I had not looked at the account for a couple of weeks. I've gotten, I've gotten behind also in reading emails. So I'm going to go do that this afternoon. I highlighted the ones that were more to you. I didn't want to be like, boy, thanks a lot. I'm from Alaska. Signed, John Roderick. Did you, uh, the ones that were addressed to us both, did you just take the lion's share of the credit for them? Like, thanks. Love you guys, Ken. And yeah. then not highlight them so I don't read them and, and get my share. You can them. still read them. I just highlighted some that should specifically go to your attention first. I see. It's true that I did. I did not sign them all John and Ken. Like we're all like typing it together, alternating keystrokes. <laughs> we sure appreciate your feedback. XOXOXO, John and Ken. Gorsh. Uh, you can email us at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. I, once again, highly recommend you go to the Omnibus Futurelings Facebook page, where today it seemed like, what were they talking about today on Futurelings? Dark Side of the Moon. They were, there was this incredibly weird thread where people were like, is Dark Side of the Moon a good album? And then there was, there were literally people there that were trying to claim that it wasn't. Not anymore, I banned them all. Oh, thank goodness. We, we can't have them How could you not like future. Dark Side of the Moon? I'm not saying it has to be your favorite album, but... Here's the experience I always have when I look at that Facebook fan group, is people just fondly remembering things on the show that we, you know, recorded not too long before, and I don't remember, don't remember any anything. of them. Did we, like, we must have mentioned Why are you Dark talking about Dark Side of the Moon? A thing that I <laughs> do not remember talking about in a long time. Well, and also, like, openly debating. Openly debating it. How do you... I, I have never heard... The only argument I've ever heard against Dark Side of the Moon was a general argument against psychedelic rock. But not that that album itself, you could distinguish it from a love of 
rock and roll. Or what if you're a Sid Barrett loyalist and you don't like the, the, the many, Roger Waters direction of How many of, of those Florida. are still alive? Sid Barrett loyalists. <laughs> they all died of some kind of OD uh, a long, <laughs> long time ago. A long, long time ago. Uh, and you should send me your father's and grandfather's old vintage sunglasses to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. That's real mail. Uh, do not send us. It'll go in a real mail truck. Real mail truck. Don't send us any dick butt postcards because we have one already. That's, That's a pretty good way to get more dick butt postcards. Do you think, I think, think we're going to get more? Just explicitly tell people not to do send not you. do it. Here, this is a test of whether or not you are a ding dong or not. Do not take my admonition against it and think that that makes it a fun thing to do. That's what social media is for. For somebody to be like, I hate it when a guy corrects me. And, I, and then a, a million guys are like, you forgot the period or, you know, whatever. Yeah, right, right. Somebody, so some, funny. somebody on my Instagram today said, I hate to be this guy. And then did a thing where you could absolutely tell that they did not hate to be that guy. They loved to be that Everyone guy. Everyone in the world who has ever said they hate to be that guy, like aspires to be that Super guy. Super into being that guy. Take great pleasure in being that guy. Yeah. They have that guy written in lipstick on their bathroom <laughs> mirror. <laughs> Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization is going to survive. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this very recording, like each of our recordings, may be our final word. And if it is, we should say, slavery is bad. Do not uh, institute it. Again, if it occurs to you in the future, just laying there in your natural state. What if I own some slaves? Wow, I should enslave my fellow occupants. Octopi. Um, don't. It's bad. We've already tested it out. It doesn't work. We gave it thousands of years for some reason. It's a super bummer. We did it for a long, 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 long time, but then we evolved past it. Although it should be noted that in our own time, many, 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 many people still live in a state of indentured servitude. It's under the radar, but sadly people are still trying to make In some places, not even under the radar, but yes, it's like still a global problem. If Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus.